today, we are starting just a short little kind of in-between series on the book of Psalms. And if you know anything about your Bible, you hear the word short and you hear the word Psalms and you realize those things don't go together at all because we're talking about the longest book in your entire Bible and uh, we're giving it like three weeks. So what, what we're doing right now is we, uh, we have a plan for a kickoff series and we just finished our Philippians series and we had three Sundays in between and we said, what if we each just picked a psalm and decided to preach on that? And so that's what we're doing. You're going to hear from Brian, myself, and Mark in the next three weeks, kind of dipping our toes into the book of Psalms because we tend to reference psalms a lot throughout our sermons, but we don't typically preach directly from there. So this is kind of a, a, a trial run that maybe we'll return to sometime. But what are we talking? What is the book of Psalms? Psalms is the longest book in your Bible. It's a collection of Jewish poetry that serves a number of purposes, probably the highest purpose among them being a tool for worshiping God through and in various kinds of circumstances and scenarios. Some psalms are meditations on what God is like. Some, are, some psalms are bitter complaints. The word psalm just means song, so it's like songs, okay? Uh, some are bitter complaints. Some are co- uh, corresponding with various events that took place throughout history. So you kind of get the historical view. For instance, in 1 Samuel, talking about David and Bathsheba and how he repented from that. And then you get actually what he wrote in the psalms when he repented from that. And, and I think Mark's actually going to talk about that one, unless he changes his mind. Um, a few observations about this. If you're reading through the Psalms, some things you might pick out. One, they're incredibly emotional. In the same way that when you hear a song on the radio, music has a way of evoking emotions in us that just plain words don't necessarily have. I put a lot of emphasis on our worship team leaders to really think about the words that they're singing uh, because I think that music is even more powerful than sermons a lot of times because music sticks with you. So it's like, forming your theology. It's sung theology. It's really important. In the same way, like poetry or music that we'd read today, Jewish poetry employs a lot of various literary tools and techniques, and many of the Psalms are easy to digest. You look at them, it makes sense. It's beautiful. I could memorize that. The Lord is my shepherd. Hallelujah. Great. Other ones, it's like, Lord, I want you to kick my enemy's teeth in. And, uh, you know, or, or they'll just say some awkward, crazy stuff, and you're like, I'm going to just pass that one up and, and keep reading here. Uh, because if we don't have the tools and we don't know the context, they can be really odd or even downright offensive. But the purpose overall is to make truth palatable, memorable, something that we can pass down and pass along. So today I want to start us off by looking at Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is what they call a lament, a lamentation, which basically means complaint. It's a complaint. And there's a few reasons why I want to start off this way. We might say, wow, that sounds terrible. Why would you start in the book of Psalms like that? A couple reasons. One, the topic has always intrigued me because by and large, I don't really think Christians know what to do with it. I'm all for equipping people. And what do you do with laments when you're reading the Psalms, but even when you are lamenting or complaining when things are going on in your own life, how do you handle it? There's help here. Uh, The purpose of this book, as we said, is to be this guide, this tool for worshiping. Well, consider this. 
If you break down the various kinds of psalms out of all 150 or so psalms that are there into different categories, the most frequently employed category by far is lament. Around half of the psalms are complaints. Consider this. How many of our worship songs are complaints? How often do we employ lament in the worship life of the church? Almost never. So what does that say about us and how we worship versus what God gives us as a tool for worship? Kind of interesting, isn't it? How many of the Praise 106.5 songs that you hear are laments? How many of the songs that you go listen to in your favorite Christian group are going to be laments? Very few. There are some, but very few. Definitely not close to half as in the book of Psalms. That should tell us something. And why is that the case? I, I think it's the case because we're generally uncomfortable with the topic, because for some reason as Christians, we're not quite sure what to do with our feelings about the various problems that arise in our lives. There are typically two approaches to how to handle feelings in our culture today. You could call one a hyper-religious approach, maybe, and that is you need to stuff your feelings. Don't complain to God because that's immature and disrespectful and God might smite you for it. Or if, if you are a true Christian, if you really believe in Jesus, then the evidence is that everything's going to be going well in your life. And if you start complaining, well, then that means there's something wrong with you. God must not be blessing you. He must not love you and so on. There's also the other approach. <clears throat> there's kind of what I would call a secular approach to how we deal with our feelings, and that is to embrace them wholeheartedly. Your, your feelings are what you are governed by. You put them on a pedestal. Lament gives us a third option, neither to put them on a pedestal nor to stuff them. How to take your feelings to God without doing either of those things. Wait, you might ask, doesn't the Bible frown on grumbling or murmuring or complaining, though? Don't we see, like, the Israelites complaining in the desert and God getting really furious with them about it? Well, I just want to point out there's a difference between lament, genuine lament complaining, and murmuring or grumbling complaining. And I won't spend a lot of time on that. But grumbling or murmuring complaining is complaining amongst one another about how we're disgruntled, or gossiping, even gossiping about God in the case of the Israelites, or a situation in which we're blaming him for it. Lament is bringing our complaint to God. Grumbling, we are in our attitudes, turning our face away from God, whereas lament, the problem is that we feel like God has turned his face away from us, and we want him to turn back. Grumbling, the desire is not God, but the fix to our situation. Lament, the desire is more of God, not less. Okay, So there's a little distinction there. Let's go ahead and look at Psalm 13. And this is a very standard, kind of very basic lament. Okay, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? Let me just pause there. Without going any further... How many of you have said that? I mean, you don't have to raise your hands. But, but how many times do we say that? How long, O oh Lord? 
How long are you going to let my marriage go on this way? How long am I going to have to deal with this issue with my kids? How long am I going to have to fight this illness? How long? I just want to say, let's just pause and realize that that's a place that we are a lot of times. How long? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider me and answer, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pause and pray. God, right now I want to pause and just acknowledge that there's power in your words. And we see here a situation beginning with how long? Will you forget me? Have you forgotten me? Why do you turn your face from me? To singing, ending with singing. And uh, Lord, I, I don't claim that we're going to just go through that entire trans, uh, transition today, but show us, open us up to how this happens. Uh, Lord, I just want to lift up anyone here who is asking those questions now. How long? Lord, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Have you turned your face from me? I just want to ask that you comfort anyone here this morning who is in that place and just say, thank you that your word gives us permission to be in that place and to bring that to your feet without fear. So God, we lift all this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, A few little contextual things about this If you notice the way this is written, there's kind of a journey. I referenced it when I just prayed. A journey of emotional processing, you might say. He begins with, God has forgotten me and turned his face away from me. He ends with singing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Those are two extremes. So how do we get there? In the beginning, God is absent and I have only myself to take counsel in and my heart is full of sorrow. It ends with, I have trusted in God's steadfast love and my heart shall rejoice in his salvation. Beginning with, my enemies are exalted over me. Ending with, that my enemies may not say, I have prevailed over him. And right in the middle is this hinge. It changes course in the middle, in the hinge. It's an appeal. And the appeal changes things. Even though the external things haven't changed, as of yet, the perspective does. There are three perspectives that change over the course of this psalm. You notice it begins with a perspective on God, moves to a perspective on the self, about myself, himself, and then moves to the perspective on the problem. In this case, it's his enemies. But for you and me, we might not be really lamenting over our enemies right now. But really, it's whatever is that thing that's happening to us to cause us to believe that God has turned his face away from me. 
So there's a perspective on God and what he's doing, a perspective on myself. I only have counsel with myself and sorrow all the day long, and a perspective on the problem. And then there's the hinge, and then it goes backwards. There's a perspective, a a renewed perspective on the problem, a renewed perspective on himself, and then a renewed perspective on God. Okay, so so the the problem, the self, and God in, in two different orders here. What's the situation going on here? What is the problem? Most likely, this psalm takes place when David, King David, when he's, well, before he's officially reigning as king, is on the run from King Saul. Now, you might know the story of David. You might know David and Goliath. David was this little shepherd boy who was anointed by a prophet named Samuel to be the the, the chosen king of Israel. The problem is there was already a king of Israel, the king that God had not specifically chosen to be his king, King Saul. And Saul is probably one of the most apparently bipolar pictures of anyone in the entire Bible. If you just read what he does, he just waffles back and forth from just I love David. I love this guy. I really admire him. I appreciate him to being threatened and trying to kill him like almost in the next breath. And so at this point, David is on the run. He has to run. He has to flee his homeland, free, uh, flee his people um, in order to get away from Saul and his people who are trying to kill him. And at one point, David tries to take refuge among other nations and they, they, they realize it's David and they're like, hey, we've got some leverage here. So David pretends like he's been cast out of his own homeland by pretending to be a madman and foaming at the mouth and all this stuff. And so they're like, hey, we've got enough crazy people of our own get him out of here and so then David ends up in a in living in caves hiding in the wilderness and this goes on for a long time okay how long Lord and and we we don't really get the scope of it by just reading the story of what that must have been like because we know the end of the story okay we know that God does get justice and and exalt him to the throne and he has an incredible monarchy the golden age of Israel but he doesn't know that He's sitting in a cave going, God, you said I was the true king. What's the deal? It looks like you've turned your face away from me. You've forgotten me. Okay, so that's kind of the situation. When we can't see the whole story, it's hard to make sense of our suffering. A psychiatrist I was reading about in one of my commentaries that said human beings are naturally inclined to project their circumstances onto God. When a person feels despair or guilt, it, it results in a feeling of a deep chasm between that person and God. At the same time, if you are feeling rejection or abandonment or isolation from other people, you naturally are going to feel like God has rejected you and is isolating you or has abandoned you. Now, as we say that, it doesn't necessarily make sense rationally. But that's what we do. When we feel like things aren't going well, we feel like God has left us. That's the conclusion that we tend to draw. Would you agree with that? that, Have you felt that way? Yeah, I I know I do. Lots of times. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face forever? From me. So there's a point here. God is okay with your complaining to him in this way. Bring your raw, disgruntled, despair-laden, agonizing emotions to him. He wants you to seek him, even though 
you might be wrong about your situation. Had David, had God forgotten David? Had he turned his face away? No. But David feels like God has abandoned him, so he brings that to God. He brings what he has, and you can bring what you have. It's okay to bring your complaint before God, but David's complaint is brought with humility and reason. He can't make sense of his situation, but he's going to go with what he knows, not only what he feels. What does he know? Not just what he feels, but what does he know? He knows the scriptures. We learn from other psalms that he's written. Um, Blessed is he who meditates on your law day and night. Or or, I love your your word, O Lord. I love your scriptures. You know, David is a guy who absorbed the word of God. He loved the scriptures. He knew the stories. And so where he turns in this situation is to that. He was able to align his situation with biblical categories because he had those categories in here and in here. And that's another point. When you're in despair or when you're in a situation of lament and you turn to God, don't just randomly turn to God. Turn to his word. What do you know? What do you know about God? What is true? What has he claimed over you? That's where we need to go. And that's where David goes. And I'll show you how. I believe his progression of thought here is being drawn from Deuteronomy. When things go wrong and we're feeling abandoned, there's a right way to handle things and a wrong way. The right way is to turn to God's word, as we just said, and find the right way of contextualizing our situation. The wrong way is to say, no one knows what I'm going through. No one has ever experienced what I've experienced. No one is like me right now. No one can feel what I feel right now. Wrong. Millions of people have been through what you've been through. There is no human experience that millions of people have not experienced. You are not alone. So do not go it alone. Turn to the source from people who have walked through what you're walking through. So what is David drawing on here? One of the most important things to understand is that almost every phrase that David uses in this psalm corresponds to another place in Scripture in which that phrase or or, or list of words is used, and it draws out the meaning in Psalm 13 a little more when you look at those Scriptures. In this case, I think he's drawing on Deuteronomy 31 and 32, mainly because this is the first time Deuteronomy 31, where you ever hear God say that he will turn his face away from his people. That's the first phrase that's used. How long will you turn your face away? Well, you always want to look. Where else has that been used in Scripture? Deuteronomy 31 is the first time. But God also says he will not forget his people forever. Okay, the situation in Deuteronomy is that Moses is old and he's about to die and he's passing the baton off to Joshua. But before he does, God tells Moses, I know that when you're gone, the people are quickly going to forsake me and they're going to turn their faces away from me and worship other gods. Therefore, he says in chapter 31, verse 17, I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? 
And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. So God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to write a song. I want you to write a song about this that they can learn and remember, and when they recall it, when all these things have happened, it will be a testimony to them. They'll know how to think about what is happening to them, exactly what David is doing, right? Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses, and the progression goes in a nutshell like this. It gives the story of God's salvation and his covenant with his people. And then it shows the people turning away and breaking the covenant. If you break your covenant, I'll turn my face away from you. God turns his face away from the people. The result is that the people are given over to their enemies in exile. The people who worship the gods that the Israelites are lusting after. But, God says, I might have considered leaving them to be erased from human memory. But if I do that, then the nations will misunderstand their victory and say, their God was never with them and we have triumphed victoriously. God says, they are a nation void of counsel. Notice how David's words said, lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. And notice how David says, how long must I take counsel in myself and have deep sorrow in my heart? It is, his, it is the enemies who take counsel in themselves and lack wisdom by forgetting the glory of God. There are many places in the Old Testament that say, save us, O God, for your name's sake. So God says, I will vindicate Israel so that my name will not be forgotten, so that they'll never say God was not with them. Their God was puny or something like that. God says, I will vindicate them. I will have compassion on them. When they have no power in and of themselves, they will then realize the futility of their other gods and they will say there is no God besides our God and they will become people who do keep my covenant. So this, this is what the progression looks like. It starts with salvation, not works to earn salvation. It starts with salvation. God rescues them from Egypt free of charge. Moves to a covenant relationship of existing in the presence of God. Moves to a broken covenant. Moves to exile. Moves to rescue from exile. And then finalizing with the transformation of the people. To become people who could actually live in covenant with God. Which... Never happens. They can't do it. Okay? So David sees. He's looking at his situation. He's going, I'm in exile. My enemies are being exalted over me. And so God must have turned his face away. How long is he going to forget me? Forever? For God to turn his face away. There's another loaded phrase right there. That's a big deal. Okay, God's face shining on his people is the equivalent of the source of life and light of life shining upon his people, beginning in Genesis 1. And when it turns away or it goes out, the people walk in darkness and chaos and death. It's represented in the tabernacle where they worship God by the light of the lampstand, representing the tree of life. God shining his light upon his people, represented by the table with the bread on it in front of it. And the priests were told to never let the light go out and to never let that table be in a situation where there's no bread on it. The bread represented the people, always in the presence of God, the light of God, always shining on the people. The face of God always turned towards his people. 
Notice how David appeals. Light up my eyes or consider me an answer. Consider me means look upon me. Show your face to me again. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. To have the light go out is confusion, exile, and eventually death or outer darkness. We have Aaron's high priestly prayer about God's face shining upon us. Maybe you say this to your kids. If you don't, you should. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the prayer of living peacefully in covenant with God. The light, the lampstand is shining on the, the bread. You know, incidentally, Jesus in John uh, chapter 1, is, it, it said the, the light shines in the darkness. The, light, the darkness has not overcome it. It's all drawing on this imagery of God's face, his light shining on his people. Will he turn his face away? Will the light go out and leave us in despair? and confusion, and darkness, and death. And that's the question. That's the sense we're supposed to have. But, when, but what you'll notice is that, what, is that God only turns his face away when the people first turn their faces away and break their covenant. And what David is trying to figure out here is all the signs are here that God has turned his face away from me, but why? Notice there's no repentance in this psalm. Okay, like the, the episode with David sinning with Bathsheba, killing Uriah, that hasn't happened. That's not going to happen for a long time. He hasn't done anything to deserve God turning his face away from him. There's no repentance. David didn't break any covenant with God, and so he's trying to figure out what's going on. Despite the formula, bad things happen to God's people. Okay? Maybe God is using something you've done and you're experiencing a natural consequence and you're going, how long, O oh Lord, must I suffer for this? But maybe not. Sometimes for no reason that we can comprehend, bad things just happen to God's people. It doesn't always fit according to the formula. Okay? And if we only take counsel, as David says, from within ourselves, trying to make sense of a formula... It will likely only result in sorrow. David says, you've hidden your face and my only counsel is myself and it's not sufficient. And the problem is prevailing over me victoriously. My enemies are. And so David appeals, God, turn the light back on. Show me your face. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Turn up, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. With the light on him, there's life and peace. When the light goes out, there's death and chaos. Consider me. means to look upon me. Turn your face towards me. Light up my eyes. Remember when Moses was exposed to the brightness of God's presence, his face shone and was bright. It also means to be enlightened. David's saying, meet with me. Respond to me. And change my perspective. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Paul prays this very prayer for the church in Ephesus. He says, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So we'd have the right perspective. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, light up my eyes, Lord, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that's the hinge. That's our prayer for you as a church. We even pasted it on the wall outside of our sanctuary door. Maybe you noticed it. Maybe you thought it was cute and flowery or cheesy or profoundly amazing. I don't know, but that's our prayer for you right here from Ephesians 1.18. That every time you would come to church on Sunday morning, that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened and you would know the hope to which God has called you. And if, and if you walk out of here without knowing that in some fuller sense, then either you've got to change something or I'm not doing a good enough job or both or something, one of those things. But that's our goal, that by coming here that we would know the hope to which we've been called, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, just as David prays at the hinge, enlighten my eyes. Yeah. And his eyes seem to have been enlightened because his perspective does change. And I want to give you four quick steps to a changed perspective. And again, this isn't just a formula. This might not happen for a long time. It's easy to use words. It's harder to actually wrestle with it. First, number one, seek his face. It's through the exposure to the presence of God that our face shines. Okay, seek his face. Two, remember the story of God's glory. Remember the story of God's glory. Three, remember your salvation. And four, rejoice in hope. Okay, seek his face. Remember the story of God's glory. Remember your salvation and rejoice in hope. Okay, so first seek his face, bring your lament and your questions to him and ask him to shine his light upon it, enlightening the eyes of your hearts. Two, remember the story of God's glory. If my enemies prevail, they will rejoice and I am shaken. They will, as God says in Deuteronomy 32, misunderstand their victory and God has no interest in forfeiting his glory. So your enemies will not prevail. Even if you die, your enemies will not prevail. That's the story of God's glory. Don't forget the story of God's glory. Your enemies will not prevail. How long will your situation afflict you? You may wait a short time. You may wait a long time. Ultimately, it may even last, last a lifetime. But in the end, God will prevail and preserve his glory by vindicating you, as Deuteronomy said. Remember your salvation, number three. But I have trusted in your steadfast love, David writes. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. There's a past tense and a future tense here. I have trusted, I shall rejoice. Remember the Red Sea. That God chose a people for his namesake. Remember the cross. That God has called you his own. And that he will not forsake you. David starts by saying, how long will you forsake me? Will you forget me forever? But then he remembers the story. And he remembers God's salvation. God does not forget 
his people. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, says God. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. He writes, 700 years before Jesus emerged on the scene. I have, en- I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Walls of Jerusalem in that context. How do you know God has not forsaken you? You know because Jesus was forsaken for you. Jesus, as the true Israel, went through the whole Deuteronomy progression that we talked about. Baptized in the Jordan just as Israel was baptized in the Red Sea. God spoke and said, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He was tempted in the wilderness yet without sin. Jesus did not buy the devil's claim that God's love would ultimately forsake him. Even though we just said he felt that, it wasn't permanent, and he knew that. Okay. Jesus' life, he lived a life of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He knows what it is to lament. Jesus experienced the ultimate exile. And on the cross, for a moment, God, metaphorically speaking at least, turned his face away. And he cried out, just like David, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was plunged into the sleep of death. My enemy death is prevailing over me. It's being exalted over me. But just like God's hope for Israel, his son was vindicated. Death was not the end. The enemy was destroyed for God's glory's sake. The enemy would not gloat and defame God's glory. The light of life shined upon him and he was resurrected eternally and invites us into that same death and resurrection through the cross and through what Jew just did today. through Being baptized and raised with him. Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. The process is complete with Christ. So number four, we rejoice in hope. Even though we lament, we rejoice in hope. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And when I looked up that word, deal bountifully, in the Hebrew language, it carries a sense of being brought through to completion. It is used of a child who has been fully weaned off of his mother's milk or of a crop that is fully ripened. In the progression of Israel's story in Deuteronomy, David sees that all of it, from salvation to exile to rescue and vindication, all of it is for the ripening of God's people. So that by their experiences, they would know that these other gods aren't God. And they would hold God's covenant and live with him in his presence, with his light and his face shining upon them, trusting in him alone. But they never did. Jesus did on their behalf. That's why he had to come. And he came for you. When we lament in Christ, we are invited to identify 
our exile with his. You're invited to see yourself in Deuteronomy 32 as those who are cast out but not forgotten. Even though we may not know why. Jesus said, anyone who would be my disciple must take up his cross and follow me. You're invited to identify with Christ's exile on the cross as your own. When Peter writes his letter to several churches, he addresses them as elect exiles, chosen by God and saved, yet still exiles. Why? Because you're invited to see your affliction, not as the death, not as the sleep unto death, but as participation in Christ's sufferings as he ripens you, as he deals bountifully with you, bringing you through to completion so that one day you will know total vindication as he was exalted. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And as we look uh, excuse me, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so we pray, God, light up my eyes so that I would know the hope to which I've been called, so that I would know the eternal perspective and be able to change the way I see this momentary affliction. So, Lament. Bring your complaint to God. He can handle it. He's okay with raw emotion. He expressed his own raw emotion in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. Two, remember the story of his glory and receive the invitation to see your story as a participation in his, Israel, Christ, and you. Three, remember your salvation. You are his child, and while you may weep for the night, joy comes with the morning. You will again rejoice. Four, rejoice in hope. Look to your hope, rooted in Christ, rooted in God's promises and in his story. Let's pray.